Pastor Chris's podcast. That was pretty sneaky, Moses, turning the Nile River into blood with Aaron's staff. My magicians can make water turn red too, but I will admit their trick was not nearly as impressive as yours. Your plague lasted seven days. I hope you're happy. How many Egyptians died of thirst that week? We had to dig wells on the shore of the Nile River just to survive. However, the river is back to normal now, and I still haven't let your people go. So who is this God you keep talking about? Who is he compared to all the many gods we have in Egypt? Even if your God can defeat Happy, the God of the Nile River, the source of Egypt's glory and wealth, the lifeblood of Osiris, we still have many other gods. Your God can't beat them all. I am Pharaoh, a descendant of the gods. You can't tell me what to do. Exodus 8, verses 1 through 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go back to Pharaoh and announce to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so they can worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs across your entire land. The Nile River will swarm with frogs. They will come up out of the river and into your palace, even into your bedroom and onto your bed. They will enter the houses of your officials and your people. They will even jump into your ovens and your kneading bowls. Frogs will jump on you, your people and your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, raise the staff in your hand over all the rivers, canals, and ponds of Egypt, and bring up frogs over all the land. So Aaron raised his hand over the waters of Egypt, and frogs came up and covered the whole land. But the magicians were able to do the same thing with their magic. They too caused frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and begged, Plead with the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people. I will let your people go so they can offer sacrifices to the Lord. So, ancient Egypt was quite an impressive civilization. I learned last night we were playing apples to apples. A uh, little fun party game that we had at the house. And one of the trivia cards that came up said that the Egyptians were the first to popularize the idea of applying scents to the armpits to cover up body odor. So if you are appreciative of uh, people being able to cover up their body odor by using deodorant and antiperspirant, you have the Egyptians to thank for that. So um, they came up with lots of interesting things. They they, um, they, they came up with one of the very first forms of writing, which is one of the reasons why we know so much about the Egyptians. It's all written down, their history and their culture. They constructed remarkable buildings, such as the Great Pyramids, which to this day, thousands of years later, are still considered to be one of the great wonders of the world. And yet, for all of their remarkable abilities, 
and contributions, Egypt was mired in sin. They were a very powerful empire, and they wielded that power against the peoples around them in ways that were, were, were not fair and were not good and were not honoring of the, sac- the, the sacredness of life. They enslaved people, such as, the Egypt, I mean, such as the Hebrews that we've been reading about, and they even committed genocide, throwing Hebrew babies into the river to control the Hebrew population. And they were guilty of idolatry. Now, idolatry might seem like a mild sin compared to things like slavery and genocide. But consider this, idolatry is a gateway sin. It leads, to, leads people deeper and deeper into doing terrible things. Idolatry replaces the one true God with a God of your own making. In the ancient world, people would often craft an idol out of stone or wood into the shape of a God they imagined. They would make their idol look however they wanted it to look. But there's, there's another thing. Not only could they make their supposed God, which was not really a God at all, look the way they wanted it to look, they could make their God act or approve of or say or believe whatever they thought that God should act or say or believe or approve of. And so one of the most heinous atrocities that the Egyptians did was forcing Hebrews to throw their baby boys into the Nile River. We read about that in in previous weeks. Now, there is a natural repulsion in every human heart to even the thought of taking a helpless infant and throwing them in a river. We know that that's wrong. You know that that's wrong. I know that that's wrong. And it doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what country you hail from or even what time in world history you lived. Everybody knows instinctively that killing a baby in this way is terrible and horrible and you shouldn't do it. We know that. We value life because God values life. We want to protect the powerless because God wants to protect the powerless. We were made in God's image. And even though we are warped by sin, we still somewhere down deep inside instinctively know that that killing babies does not reflect God's character or our purpose in this world. As they said in the Constitution, there are just certain things that we hold as self-evident, right? that you should do this and you shouldn't do that. Nobody has to teach you, you just know. But we also are sinful people and we want to do what we want to do. And we don't want God or anyone else restricting our behavior. And so if we don't like what our conscience tells us or if we don't like what the one true God says, We'll just change it. That's human. That's what humans do. And so we we see, you know, here's God, but we don't really like this about him. We don't like that he says that, or we don't, we feel guilty and we want to make a change. And so 
we'll just make a minor adjustment to God. Maybe rub out this part of his character and replace it with this. There, we like that God much better. But then someone else comes along and they says, yeah, that's great, but I really don't like this thing about God. I'd rather it be like this. And so they make another change to God. And this just keeps going on and on and on. Changing another little thing about God, making him that way. Change this little thing about God, make him that way. And this goes on and on and on. And so we come to what it tells us in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 23 says, They began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people or birds and animals and reptiles. When people start compromising the truth and start making their gods to be the way they want them to be, it's not long until your gods start condoning things like drowning Hebrew babies in the Nile River. You can go down that path. The Egyptians were smart. They were intelligent. They were creative. They were resourceful people. But they turned into utter fools because they turned their back on the truth for lies. Do you understand how incredibly blessed that we are because we have the Holy Bible. The Bible helps us to know the truth. And it guards us from forgetting the character of God and recreating him into whatever we want him to be. Because the character of God, the faith of God, the stories of God and what he has done and who he is and how he wants us to live, it's all written down. And it doesn't change. It is what it is. The same story of Exodus that we read in the scripture today is the same story that Jesus read 2,000 years ago. Now, in America today, everybody has access to the Bible. We probably have multiple copies of it sitting at home on our bookshelves. But even if you don't have a copy of the book of the Bible, you can go on the internet, you can go to BibleGateway.com, and you can have access to 20 or more versions of the Bible, all in different, slightly different wordings to try to make it clear, um, to speak in today's language, or to speak eloquently as they did in the time of King James. You could even access it in multiple languages if you need that. So it's not a problem of access. But we all have access to it, and we all can read it, and we can all see for ourselves what it says and what God is like. Now, of course, everybody has a slightly different take on it. Everybody sees it slightly different. Even though we might read the same book, we may draw slightly different interpretations. And that's okay. God speaks to us in different ways. And good, honest people might come to slightly different conclusions. That's why... There's a Baptist church across the street, and they understand things a certain way, and we're Methodists, and we understand things a certain way, but it's pretty close. I like to say that the Bible is like an anchor, okay? 
So imagine you've got a ship floating on the surface of the ocean, but it has an anchor going down that's holding it in place. What's that ship going to do? It's going to float around, right? But it's not going to float off into Never Never Land because it is anchored. And so, you know, Methodist might, ship might float over this way a little bit, and Baptist ship might float over that way a little bit, you know, whatever floats your boat. But we're all floating together because we're all anchored to the same scripture, which does not change. And it's okay to have a little bit of variation because honest people interpret things differently. But what happens if you cut loose from the anchor? You float off, don't you? And this is what a lot of people do. And they float off and they start making, you know, well, I don't like that it says that. And so I'm going to change it. I don't like that God says you shouldn't do this, so I'm going to change it. I don't like that story that's in the Bible, so I'm just going to cut it out. And before long, you float it off into Never Never Land. And you have made God the way you want him to be when he very clearly told us that he is who he is. Moses, who is speaking here to Pharaoh, met God in the, in the burning bush, right? You remember this story? Burning bush is burning, but it's not being burned up, and God speaks to Moses through it. And Moses says, well, what's your name? Who should I tell Pharaoh and the people has sent me? You remember what God said? He said, I am. Um, we really can't translate that word. The, the word is Yahweh, which is why we call God Yahweh, but we really can't fully translate it. It's untranslatable, but it means something like, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, but there's this sense that, that he is who he is, and you don't get to decide. He is. That's God. Because he created us, we don't create him. But why did God send a plague of frogs on Egypt? What's that all about? Egypt had thousands of gods, like it says in Romans. Instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. And one of the, the idols that they worshiped was made was, uh, was an important god called the goddess Hecate, which they imagined looked like a frog. She was the goddess of fertility. Egyptians imagined that Hecate was the wife of another god, Noon, the guardian of the Nile River. You may remember that last week we talked about how uh, God turned the Nile River into blood, and Hecate was supposed to be the guardian of the Nile, but he couldn't guard the Nile from Yahweh. Yahweh turned the river into blood. Well, Hecate was supposed to be married to this Nile river guardian, Num. And Num would, the Egyptians believed that Num would form the bodies of new children on his potter's wheel. And then the frog goddess breathed life into them and brought them to life. And then a child was born. That was their myth. And so an Egyptian mother who was giving birth depended upon Hecate, the frog god, to hasten the birth. 
And mothers-to-be, new mothers-to-be, often would wear amulets on their arms with the image of the frog goddess, hoping that that would bring them luck or help during their childbirth. Frogs were sacred in ancient Egypt. They were not to be trampled upon. We're to kill a frog, kind of like you aren't supposed to kill a sacred cow, right? We're not supposed to kill the sacred frog in Egypt. Well, God, Yahweh, the one true God of the Bible, he sort of has a sense of humor, don't you think? It's almost like he says, okay, all right. So you think frogs are sacred. You think these slimy creatures represent your fertility goddess. Okay, I'm going to give you some fertility with these frogs then. I'm going to give you so many frogs, you won't know what to do with them. You won't be able to walk without stepping on 10 or 15 of them in one stride. They're going to be everywhere. They're going to be in your houses. They're going to be in your bedrooms. They're even going to be in your beds. And let's see you try to make some babies when you got frogs crawling all over your bed. And once again, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, the one true God, shows the Egyptians that their gods are nothing. If Hecate is real, why didn't she or any other Egyptian god Put a stop to the nonsense. Because they couldn't. Well, I doubt that anybody listening to this today actually bows down to the statue of a frog or anything else. But we Americans have our idols too. Timothy Keller states in his book, Counterfeit Gods, an idol is anything more important to you than God, Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. And so if we're honest with ourselves, I think many may realize that we have idols today too. So what's your favorite idol? Is it wealth? Is wealth your idol? You're depending upon your wealth to protect you, to give you security. Are our pleasure and entertainment your idols? You're going to spend most of your time and energy devoting to them? Or is it love and relationships that are your idol? If I could just get the, if I could just get the right guy, if I could just get the right gal, if I could just have a good friend, everything would be fine. Could it be that your children are your idols? Children are important, but are they God? Or is it your intellect? Or is America your idol? Or could it be yourself that you've turned into an idol? Or is it something else? You see, the things that we turn into idols aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. Frogs aren't evil. They have their place. They're living creatures that God made. They're important. They're important to the environment. I understand that frogs are a keystone species. So um, if there's something going wrong in the environment, pollution or poison, it'll affect frogs before it affects all the other animals. And so they, it kind of is an indicator to the health so if you've got a bunch of frogs dying, it tells you something's wrong. I mean, 
That's one good thing about frogs. So, but they're not God, right? Children are important. They're a blessing from God, and, and we're to nurture them and to love them. But they're not gods. And sometimes you see some parents, the way they hover over their kids, and to them, it's almost like their kids are God to them. They're the most important thing. Money, intellect, national pride, all of these things are good. None of them are evil in and of themselves. But it's when we expect them to do for us what only God can do, that's when we run into trouble. It's when, when they are more important to us than God, that's when we sin. It's when they absorb our heart and our imagination more than God. That's when we're heading toward destruction. So what are you clinging to as an idol that you need to let go of today? I want to invite you to repent of your idolatry and turn to Jesus for forgiveness. He will forgive you, just as Amy said in the youth moment. He will forgive you if you earnestly repent. And if, if you do that, he will forgive you and he will show you who God really is in the most accurate way. And, and where do you see what Jesus is like? It's not the popular image of Jesus that's been made up by people. It's not what you think about Jesus. You see, you don't get to make him who you want him to be. Just like God, he, he is who he is. He was a real person. He is a real person. And his character is what it is. It's not something you get to decide. It's not even, Jesus is not even what any expert says about Jesus. Your Bible is where you read the most accurate description of Jesus and what he did and what he said and how he expects us to live and what he's like. And perhaps John in the third chapter of the 16th verse, that may be the best summary of who Jesus is, where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's a great summary and that's a good place to start. But don't stop there. Go on and read and study and trust and follow him because he is the one true living God. And he is who he is. And he made you. And he loves you. And even though sometimes we try to change him, try to do things our own way, maybe in try, even trying to alter the image of God so that we made ourselves feel better about the things that we were doing wrong. Even though we've done that, he still loves us. And he still calls us to come back and to know him and to love him and to be loved by him 
and to be filled with life through him. I pray that you will.